talking politics, specifically dirty money in our politics, with esteemed law professor and author Jennifer Tall. Ordinary Americans or everyday people, as Sly Stone might say, suffer greatly when the rich and powerful uh, use tax dodges or break the law to get richer and more powerful. But can their exploits be stopped, particularly in an election season? Please to be welcomed uh, by Jennifer Tall uh, in this hour. Jennifer, good to have you on this program. How are you today? I am good, Travis. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you. Thank you for for coming on. Let me start with this. The, the minute I um, uh, started prepping for this conversation, my mind went to one Donald J. Trump, uh, ah. and and that yeah, no, don't laugh. But my mind went there uh, to him specifically. The moment you may recall, I'm sure you will. The country recalls, I'm sure, um, when he was in that debate with Hillary Clinton, and he was bragging about tax dodging bragging about mm-hmm. the ways in which he had avoided and averted uh, paying taxes. Uh, we've learned a great deal more about his financial situation since that time. But uh, you recall that moment, that night? Uh, oh, boy, I for sure do. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, how did you read that? Here you have a president or a guy running for president at the time uh, who was bragging about uh, tax dodging, bragging about uh, the ways he had averted um uh, paying the government their their fair share, did so boldly, did so brazenly, and it didn't stop him from getting elected. Uh, and for that matter, as you recall, refused to share his taxes. As I said, we've learned a great deal more about his financial matters since then. Uh, but he uh, he he, uh, he sort of taunted all the rest of us with his ability to do this in ways that the rest of us know not how. Yeah, I mean, he is the poster child for a kind of elite immunity. Uh, that has been reserved to the white, wealthy, and well-connected. And his legal entanglements went back from his back to when his, he was in his 20s. I mean, this is a guy who has had brush after brush with the law. And even in situations where the facts could have led to a criminal indictment, this is even before he was in the White House, they kind of used the light touch on him that a lot of people of his, you know, his class and his demographic often, often get. And I firmly believe that if he had been held accountable prior to running for office, he would have spent time in a federal prison and not in the Oval Office. And I think that has been borne out by what we're seeing now when finally at age 77, you know, he is finally having the walls close in on him, maybe. The other way to read that that Trump moment, and we'll, we'll expand this conversation as we move through the hour, but the other way to read that moment um, is is this, if the law allows for these sort of, what word am I looking for here, shenanigans, if the law mm-hmm. allows for these sort of legal shenanigans, then why should we be mad at Donald Trump or anybody else? Ah, uh-huh. uh, well, it depends. I mean, this is what he said, right? Because he said, yeah, you know, I don't pay my taxes, that makes me smart, or something to that effect. Exactly. And... You know, there there is that attitude that some people have, which is, if I can get away with it, then why shouldn't I? And the problem is that, you know, we definitely have two systems, criminal justice systems in America. Um, and, you know, people like him can go on national television and boast about this. He's even been indicted. Um, his corporation was indicted and convicted in connection with tax evasion. And now he has been... Um, himself indicted four different times related to different types of fraud and so on. 
And, you know, you look at how he gets the full measure of due process. He gets much more than anyone else. And let's compare it to two men who met, uh, met their deaths in the street who were both um, accused of financially related crimes. For example, um, you look at um, Eric Garner, who was, um, he was, you know, just selling loose cigarettes mm-hmm. in, in the streets. And by the way, the allegation there was a kind of tax evasion because he was bringing in um, those cigarettes uh, from a different state that didn't have as high as a tax. And what happens to him? You know, he was doing an, kind of an arbitrage opportunity, exploiting the difference in price from one jurisdiction to another. Mm-hmm. On Wall Street, they make you a multimillionaire for that. For him, he got tackled and strangled in the street. Um, you know, you look at the same situation with George Floyd, where he was accused of passing off, what was it, just $20 bill, mm-hmm. and ends up getting strangled. And I mentioned this, um, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic when, when I say that if you participate in a system where you are a scofflaw, where you just don't believe in following the laws, and then the system lets you get away with it, it's on us too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Sorry, bet, go ahead. No, no, I bet, uh, I bet, I bet you didn't see uh, you being the audience and, and and myself for that matter. I bet you didn't see Eric Garner sliding into that conversation. Uh, I, I bet you didn't see George Floyd easing into that dialogue. Uh, I love smart people. Uh, I love the fact that she invoked those names, um, and it, it gives you a sort of uh, flip side of the coin, if you will, of how some folk get away with this nonsense, others get literally strangled and choked. Uh, for the same thing. I digress. Just getting started with Jennifer Taub. Uh, her book is called Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. You're listening to Tavis Smile. Seeking the truth. The truth. Speaking, Speaking the, truth. the truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley, Smiley Show. Sounds different. different. Huh. This, this is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in Dialogue with Jennifer Taub, a esteemed professor of law and author uh, and expert uh, on dirty money in our politics. Um, Jennifer, let me go back to what I uh, presented to you moments ago, uh, and that is this, this notion, this frame that if the law allows for said behavior, uh, for people to, uh, to sort of uh, uh, work around, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase here, um, uh, being held accountable uh, for their responsibility when it comes to taxes and beyond. If the law allows for that, then why should we be mad at those like Donald Trump who sort of brag about that and rub our faces in it if they're doing it legally? That's the question I asked earlier. It occurred to me during that break when I said that if the law allows that somebody wrote that law. Uh <laughs> Uh, you probably see where I'm going here. Somebody wrote that law, and it seems to me that therein lies a part of the problem, um, that these laws are written by both Republicans and Democrats, if we're going to be honest about it. Uh, and as such, uh, there are folk, Republicans and Democrats, who take advantage of that. And I'm not sure I hear an indictment of that reality often enough, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, there's the, like, there's the writing of the law and signing it into law by the president, and then there's the people who get hired to enforce the law. All, you know, and so the, you know, we have a problem with you know all along the chain. You know, the types of the types of laws that ordinary people can get apprehended for in public places um, versus the sort of private 
law shenanigans that can harm people as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you rob someone, you know, if you, if you go into a store and you don't pay uh, for the things that you buy and you walk out and commit shoplifting, you know, that's going to be apprehended probably much more quick quickly than if you engage in unlawful insider trading or if you hide some money offshore unlawfully and not pay taxes on it. Um, and so part of it is, you know, the nature that when we look at, when you set up a law and it's a law that you're not going to put the dollars behind to enforce or you don't start to recognize the complexity and you put your enforcement dollars behind the low-hanging fruit. And I can give you an example since you um, you talk about the tax the tax issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the evidence is that the IRS historically has been putting, you know, so much more energy going after um, people. You know, it's like Leanna Helmsley said, little people, mm-hmm. and not the not the big people who are engaging in tax evasion. And you know, even when the Democrats wanted to provide more funding for the IRS so they could actually start engaging in going after the people with the more complicated. Uh, evasion uh, schemes um, that was really fought, and it tends to be this. On the one hand, this kind of propaganda saying, "Oh, they're, we don't want to give the IRS more money because they're just going to come down against ordinary people," um, versus what they want to do. But the reality is, is somewhere in between. Because right now, the reality is that the IRS is really going after um, people who earn less than twenty thousand dollars a year. They're just as likely to be audited as a top 1%. And yet, in terms of uncollectability, um, really, most of it, uh, you know, only about 3% of what is owed that doesn't get collected comes from low earners. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's a 50-50 chance, you know, 50, you know, I shouldn't say 50-50 chance, but you're just as likely sure. if you earn 20000 you know, to be audited. The place that they should be um, should be auditing are the people who, the top earners who bring in more than $5 million a year. But mm-hmm. that's not what they go after. And, you know, Senator Ron Wyden, who I love from Oregon, sure. um, recognizes, you know, there's two tax systems in, in this country. Um, and, you know, we ignore the wealthy cheats, but we penalize low-income workers, even if they make small mistakes. Yep. Why, why, why uh, again, as I often say, not naive, not naive in asking this, but why, why do you think that frame exists? Why? Does the IRS spend all of its uh, time going after ordinary people, everyday people, the little people, uh, particularly given your point that that's where they have the least likelihood of collectability anyway? Why harass everyday people? You know, because they're easy marks. Or let me say it differently. If you have a job Mm -hmm. and your job is in collections at the IRS um, and sending a letter to somebody um, or making a phone call puts the fear of God in them, and then suddenly you can get that money and that settlement. You have opened and closed a case more mm. quickly mm. than than some of the more complicated stuff that's going to be hard to track down. And they're going to put, you know, if you if you owe the government, you know, tens of millions of dollars, it's worth hiring a lawyer to fight them. Sure. You know, and so I think it just takes longer, and I think there's a pressure to open and close cases um, and churn out these exams. Um, I think that's part of it. I mean, part of it's on the audit side and part of it's on the collection side. The other part is the reason why they go after so many low-income people is because the law is way too confusing. Mm. The place that they tend to audit is this thing called the Earned Income Tax Credit. Sure. Um, because sometimes people, it's, every, it's, it's really hard to understand. Even experts 
can't fully understand what how much a person's supposed to get. And so it gets especially confusing if a child is living in different homes and maybe both parents might claim the child. And what I have to say about that is, God forbid, both households have enough money to feed their kid. But that's mm. not how the government looks at it. And and so also what happens is because the law is so complicated, people have to hire a tax preparer. And some of these tax preparers are unscrupulous, and they, they make promises, like, I'm going to get you all this money, and they take a chunk of it, and they just mix stuff up on the forms. And then, you know, it's basically, basically, that's one of the reasons. And there's a way to fix it. I know some really good people who have been working, who are real taxpayer advocates for ordinary people, and they have some ideas about how to fix it. And I'm so glad we're talking about this. I'm writing a book that I'm almost done with that will come out next fall on, um, on tax and what, you know, trying to deal with the unfairness for ordinary people as compared to the looking the other way for the rich. I'm glad you raised that issue, too, because there are a couple things I want to interrogate you on in that regard, given what you just <laughs> said. N- n- number one, and you may may be fully aware of this, um, and I recall this like it was yesterday, and Ronald Reagan said a number of things that went in one ear and out the other ear. Um, but frankly, there are two or three things he said that have always stuck with me, and I was no fan of Ronald Reagan. Uh, but of the three things that I, uh, that I recall vividly, like he said them yesterday, he, Ronald Reagan once said publicly that the earned income tax credit is the greatest anti-poverty program in history. That's Ronald Reagan saying that, that yep. the earned income yep. tax credit is the greatest anti-poverty program in history. And yet it's been bastardized. It's been demeaned. It's been treated like a like a, like a political football. What is it about yep. this earned income tax credit that always keeps us fighting over it? Uh, that allows the IRS, quite frankly, to exploit it and go after everyday people when Ronald Reagan says it's a great anti-poverty program? I think, um, so I guess there's two things. I agree. I would couple that today in addition to the earned income tax credit where we actually have the government giving people money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think the child the child tax credit mm-hmm. that came up um that is not work-based. That that uh, that tax credit is also it's lifted so many people out of poverty. Um, I think that we, you know, what what a friend of mine um, who's a law professor, um, Les Book, Leslie Book, he teaches at Vanderbilt, recommended. What I think this makes so much sense is that we need to separate the part of the IRS where the employees are tasked with auditing and collecting and kind of enforcing, right, from the part that's dealing with. Um, giving benefits to people. Mm-hmm. Like the earned income tax credit is a really important benefit, as you mentioned, Ronald Reagan and others, to lift people out of poverty, but it's confusing and the rules change every year. And you really should have a different division of, you know, a different division, like the IRS is part of, you know, it, it, you know broken out of the IRS, call it, you know, it could be sort of under the same budget, but you could call it something else mm-hmm. like the, you know, family assistance or the, you know, the family assistance service or something, you know, fast or something like that. And and have it be that they're there to help you uh, fill out those forms correctly, that they're not there to, you know, hurt people and, and tie up their their tax return with crazy audits and penalties, but that they're, they're there to actually help you get it right, make the correction and get you the money that you need. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that I've heard that made a lot of sense, the success of the, um, the child tax credit during COVID was that it came out monthly mm-hmm. and it makes a lot of sense to have any time you're giving a family um, or a household money, having it come on a monthly basis has a benefit in that you don't, you're not going to get as many of these unscrupulous people around tax time trying to take a big chunk of it. 
and also the money is going to be coming in when you need it every month. Um, you know, and it's just going to be better. So I think there's a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm so supportive of the ITC. I'm also supportive of the child tax credit. And I think it needs to be set. I think the people who deal with, um, deal with families should be helpful, mm-hmm. not looking to trip them up and you know put them in jail. We're talking with Jennifer Taub, uh, esteemed professor of law, about uh, big, dirty money. Uh, it's a big conversation. We're covering out of ground, but that's our, that's our essential theme in this hour. We'll get uh, back to the big, dirty money piece in just a moment. I'm just trying to interrogate a few things she said here uh, just in the last couple of minutes that I want to um, address before we move forward. The other thing that comes to mind, uh, when you said uh, moments ago that this tax law is complicated, there are two ways to read that. Um, that's precisely what Republicans and other conservatives have been saying for years, that our tax laws are complicated and they ought to be simplified if not done away with. They certainly ought to be simplified if not done away with. And you hear a different sort of refrain from Democrats uh, about the complicated tax laws that we live under. So help me unpack that debate in real time, uh, this notion that our tax laws are just too complicated. Because again, we're in political season. We're going to hear something about this as we move uh, through this election cycle. But just kind of frame for me that debate right now about the complicated nature of our tax laws, whether you're rich or poor. Oh, boy. Uh, so let me let me pick a few things to keep our eye on because mm-hmm. talk about real time. There is a really important case that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided to hear. It's called Moore versus United States, mm-hmm. um, involving a guy named Charles Moore and his wife, Kathleen. And um, it's a case that's going to be heard this this uh, year. And before we uh, even talk about the facts of it, it's basically, a, you know, not just these individual people. It's, it's, it's being supported by a lot of libertarian and highly, you know, very conservative mm-hmm. think tanks and so on. And the outcome of that case could either open the door to a wealth tax or it could not only shut out that possibility unless we get a constitutional amendment, but it could also shut down other ways in which we tax people. Mm. So I want to put that on your radar. It's mm-hmm. really important. Um, as for the as for the complexity, you know, the complexity in the tax code is there because uh, for two reasons. One, life is complex, but the real reason is everybody who has a lot of money and power wants to get their particular exception for what they're doing. And so, you know, money in politics, this is part of big, dirty money, influences the way the tax code is written and not just who gets put in power to enforce it. And there was a time, speaking of Ronald Reagan, um, he had a tax reform statute in 1986 which was um, designed um, to try to have a broad tax base and low rates across the board with like no, like, you know, cutting back on a lot of the exemptions and cutting back on a lot of the loopholes. And in time, no one, you know, no one who had a lot of power wanted that and they kept getting more and more and more changes to the code. So there's that. Um, and then I guess the final thing is, um, I'd say is, uh, I don't know if you know, law professor Dorothy Brown mm-hmm. wrote a really good book called mm-hmm. The Whiteness of Wealth. Yep. And I, I teach that some, in one of my classes, and it kind of talks about how if you have, you know, the tax code over the years gets to have in mind or tries to support based on the values of the people in power, a particular idea of traditional white family unit. 
even if that I even if that is not neither an ideal nor a reality for most of the people in the country. And so you see that the laws kind of kind of reflect that. So, you know, I would say that it is complex. I have some ideas that I'm going to mm-hmm. spell out in the book that I think would make things less complex. But keep in mind that you and I don't have all the power. The people who don't want to pay the taxes, the multi-billionaires um, themselves, you know, have so much money and power that they can make, you know, yeah. they can decide what they're going to pay. Yeah. Uh, when we come forward, I'll, I'm going to pivot back to um, the uh, broad conversation we're having uh, about big, dirty money. There's a uh, there's some new uh, data out, um, some new details, I should say, uh, about Donald Trump and that his election money may be seized. So you got all these indictments he's facing, but now there's a major story out today that Donald Trump's election money may be subject to seizure. If they actually seize his money, then that deals a major blow to his presidential run, say nothing of his legal defense against these federal indictments. I'll tell you about that news when we come forward with Jennifer Taub on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? ideas. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Continuing our conversation now about big, dirty money, particularly in this uh, political season that we find ourselves uh, for the next 12 months or so. Um, our guest is Jennifer Taub, esteemed professor of law and author. Uh, I said uh, moments ago that there's some um, interesting news about about Donald Trump. Uh, we've been talking, of course, about all these indictments and about his um, his campaign that uh, continues uh, for president unabated, at least at the moment. But consider that Trump's uh, election money may be seized. It may be seized if it is determined that it was obtained by fraud. And then it raises significant questions about where his campaign funds actually go. Could be both a blow to his presidential run and, of course, his legal defense against federal indictments. Here's the backstory. This issue surfaced um, um, some days ago during investigations of Trump by special counsel Jack Smith, of course. Um, we are told that uh, general counsel, FBI general counsel Andrew Weissman is questioning people in connection to the money raised by Trump's Save America uh, PAC, his political action committee, after he lost the 2020 presidential election. Uh, if it is determined uh, that some of this money uh, was uh, raised um, illegally, uh, then it could lead to what's called a pretrial forfeiture, uh, and the result would be that the money would be frozen. Um, and there, there are a couple ways to read this. And I want to get your take on it, Jennifer Taub. One, one way to read this is that um, we're learning more, obviously, about uh, Donald Trump's shenanigans, to use a word that I, that I raised earlier. The other way to read this is that this is the kind of stuff that empowers um, and frustrates, infuriates, infuriates uh, his followers. That every other day we seem to find another story about something else they're looking into vis-a-vis Donald Trump. And it just adds to this notion, this narrative, that there is a witch hunt against Donald Trump. But since we're talking about big, dirty money, I yield to you. You know, the tough thing, thank you, Thomas. I mean, the tough thing is, you know, he does a lot of 
he engages in a lot of criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. And you know, no matter if you don't if you don't enforce against him, he hollers. And if you go after him, he hollers. So it's kind of like he's he's a phenomenon similar to a combination between a seasoned con artist and an authoritarian dictator um, because he's figured out the angles. He figured out how to whip up support from his most devoted following. So if you back off of him... He'll say, see, they had nothing on me. And if you go after him, he'll say, see, they're, uh, it's a witch hunt. He's got, you know, he's got the script. Uh, he's like, you know, one of those dolls. You pull the string and he's going to say he's got his recorded line no matter what is in front of him. So it's, it's, it's quite difficult. You know, whether or not they engage in a pretrial asset forfeiture, um, it's a good question. I'm, you know, the, the trouble with doing it is that he'll just use it as another fundraising technique anyway mm-hmm. um i think the bigger question for me is whether there is evidence to bring a kind of wire fraud which is essentially just federal you know just using um internet or phones or what have you to engage in a kind of fraud a scheme to deprive people of money or property based on fraud or fraudulent pretenses and what jack smith as you know is looking into is whether the post 2020 is like his political action committee um, was reaching out to people and making knowingly uh, making false claims about um, the you know his election loss. Yeah. And if they can find you know find that evidence, the people involved in that, whether it's him um, or the uh, others involved with the PAC um, or others facilitating that alleged fraud, not you know not only would they go to jail, but the the money could be could be frozen ahead of if it's the proceeds of fraud ahead of it. But um, you make the point, which is no matter what happens, um, he's going to make hay out of it. Yep. Well, two things. One, I can't imagine that whatever they uh, potentially seize, should they seize anything at all, <clears throat> whatever they seize, I can't imagine he wouldn't raise double that. <laughs> just yep. letting people know this is what they just did to me. Uh, if they take $7 mm-hmm. million, he may raise fourteen. So I, I, I'm not surprised, to your point, uh, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, how he would use this story, but uh, the the story is that they are now digging into his campaign money to see if any of this money was obtained by fraud, and if so, uh, they're going to freeze it, and that's going to impact his campaign, as I said earlier, uh, and his uh, his defense. Um, that said, what's 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 fascinating about this what's fascinating about this for me <clears throat> about this story uh, is uh, the ways in which. You were saying earlier that we tend to go after the IRS, that is, goes after everyday, the government, goes after everyday people and not um, uh, not persons uh, who uh, tend to be as wealthy as, as Donald Trump. And yet here we are now. This campaign season is underway. Political spending is soaring. The role of money in politics, once again, front and center. And it raises questions in this campaign season about corporate donations, dark money, the influence, of course, of special interest groups. And I can't imagine that that is not going to be... Um, uh, on uh, on steroids as we move through this season uh, of campaigning, particularly if we see a rematch of Biden and Trump. But what say you? I you know I see no lies detected. Yeah. <laughs> what they say, <laughs> you know, it's hard. You know, this uh, and it wasn't just Citizens United in 2010 that caused a lot of money, although it certainly. It certainly added to it. I think it really goes back to 1976 
with this case called Buckley versus Vallejo. That's the case where the Supreme Court first equated money with political speech. And um, it's a shame, um, but that, that started, the, started the ball rolling. And, you know, right now there's so much money, and you mentioned dark money because the light does not shine on some of it. You know, even, mm-hmm. though, even though eight out of nine of the Supreme Court justices and Citizens United, all but uh, Justice Thomas, agreed in one part of the decision on something, which was Congress could require transparency over political contributions. They just get hidden um, behind layer after layer of shell organization. And you really, you know, I remember Stephen Colbert said this thing about how Citizens United lets you shout through a megaphone of cash. Remember Mm. when he set up that pack? And the trouble is you can see the person holding the megaphone and you know there's cash that's backing someone with their speech, but we don't know where it comes from. And I just feel like it, it hurts um, our democracy because one of the arguments around the marketplace of ideas and, you know, let people speak is, you, you know, the listener has rights to, and listeners need to know if you see, you know, a thousand people saying something, if they're all being paid by the same place, that's going to affect mm-hmm. our judgment, you know, and so on. And we don't, we don't get that transparency. Jane Mayer wrote a great book called Dark Money about this, um, and it's only gotten worse over time. Speaking of the people, when we come forward, I want to completely flip the script. We have spent about 45 minutes now talking about something. Um, hold, hold your breath um, or clutch, clutch your pearls, uh, Jennifer. <laughs> we spent 45 minutes talking about something that apparently the American people don't care about. This conversation about big, dirty money in our politics is not new. Uh, and yet not much has been done to address it. To your point just now, it's gotten worse, not better. So why have I spent 45 minutes of my life that I can't get back talking about something that nobody cares about? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. So, Jennifer, I invited you on for this conversation. Um, so clearly um, it, it underscores that uh, this matters to me and it's something that ought to be discussed. Uh, and so I wasn't being dismissive of the subject matter with my with my my last comment. What I what I was pointing to, uh, what I was pointing to is that this is not new. Uh, and yet on the left and the right, Americans seem not to have this issue anywhere on their agenda, much less near the top of the agenda. And I don't know how to read that. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's hard. It's kind of abstract, right? Because like you and I are, are, you know, we may be angry about it. We may see the injustice, but most people are, you know, looking what is right in front of them. And unless they see the connection, Mm -hmm. why should it matter? Mm -hmm. And I think to me, the connection is, you know, if you're looking around your neighborhood and you're wondering why is the playground, why doesn't it have, you know, up-to-date equipment for kids to play with? Or if you're looking at the school your kids go to and the water fountains aren't working and there's not air conditioning and they're having a hard time hiring teachers. Mm -hmm. Or if you're wondering, you know, things like, you know, why is it that Biden had this plan to cancel student debt and then suddenly that gets turned around? It's the stuff that that affects people day to day. The You know, we have so much abundance in this country. We have so much possibility and yet, why isn't why doesn't everyone have you know share in that prosperity? And the answer to that question is because 
when it comes to, for example, tax, some people aren't paying their fair share when it comes to allocating public money, which is what the Treasury, you know, collects or what money is created, whether through the banking system or through, you know, the Fed is always printing money. Why is that getting siphoned off into certain pockets? Why are some people hoarding it? Because the hoarding of wealth Mm -hmm. um, is what hurts us all. And so... You know, that's the story. It's like water. Like you think about in a drought, you know, some people are hoarding the water and others don't have anything to drink. I think the other reason why this doesn't resonate necessarily with with, uh, many fellow citizens is because when we think of big, dirty money, um, white collar crime, um, you know, this cesspool um, that is our politics these days, this financial cesspool, if you will. um, I think we tend to think of this, this conversation as having no victims. We see these as victimless crimes, mm. and I think that may be mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it doesn't resonate either. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, and I'm glad that you you prompted that for me because um, yeah, I, de- I devote a chapter to victims mm-hmm. because I do think people see white-collar crime as victimless, and, you know, there are direct and indirect victims. And the example, you know, you look at, you know, one of the biggest white-collar crimes of our era is what happened with the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. you know, with um, with Purdue Pharma. And, you know, the, victor, the chapter on victims I wrote about in Big Dirty Money was called Victims in the Shadows, you know. And I think the problem is the reason why we don't always see the victims is we always blame victims. You know, mm-hmm. if someone gets addicted, mm-hmm. it's the victim's fault, even though we know the doctor shouldn't have been prescribing given that people have a propensity for addiction and yet the pharmaceutical company lied in their marketing and lied about the studies claiming that this wouldn't be as addictive and it was equally addictive as yeah. other opioids and then people move on to that. And you know, the other examples are, you know, when people get, violate the law when it comes to like EPA emissions, you know, mm-hmm. why could you, you know, why is your kid having trouble breathing and having asthma? And all this stuff, there, there are all kinds of victims. Also, you know, all the telemarketing fraud and even crypto fraud, there's a way that people are ashamed. Oh, yeah. They're ashamed if they're yeah. victims. They don't want to talk about it, um, but victims are everywhere. Point well taken. These are not victimless crimes. I digress. I remain in moments with Jennifer Todd when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. She's got a few minutes left here in conversation with uh, esteemed law professor Jennifer Taub, author of the book Big Dirty Money. Um, I'm wondering whether or not there is anything to be done ultimately about this breakdown of enforcement and accountability in the context of money in class, Professor Taub. I do. I mean, I did make some suggestions in the book, and not all of them have been taken up. But what I have noticed is the more attention that we pay to it, the more pressure gets put on the Department of Justice. The number two in charge there under Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, has a background in prosecuting white-collar crime. And she gave a bunch of speeches and then warned um, corporate lawyers that she was coming after some of their clients, that they were repeat offenders especially. And everyone was up in arms about that. But they are starting to crack down more. Um, but the reality is, you know, it's something Elizabeth Warren said, personnel is policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got to put in some tough people into these roles who aren't afraid of the pushback. I mean, uh, you know, and that's all I'll say about that, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, you got to put someone with the temperament of, of, of enforcement, law enforcement in charge, not the temperament of a judge, if you want accountability. How much worse does big, dirty money, certainly in our politics, get? Uh, how much worse does it get before it gets better, if it ever does? Well, I think, you know, I, I think it stays the same or it gets worse. I do think we need a constitutional amendment. And I think there are people working on that. And I guess the question is, what will be that breaking point? An amendment that does or says what exactly? Um, there are different organizations looking for an amendment that would limit the amount of um, money that could be uh, spent uh, by business organizations in the political process. The problem is you can, if it's not drafted correctly, run up against our concerns that we want that you know about speech, mm-hmm. right? Um, you would have to have careful protection uh, for the press and so on. But there are organizations that are working on these um, state by state by state. Mm. Um, we shall see what this uh, next election cycle brings us. Um, I can guarantee you um, that money is going to be at the epicenter. <laughs> Of of of, yep. of anything and everything that happens over the next twelve months or so, um, and again, in case you've just tuned in, there is some, some new news um, that the uh, the Feds, uh, Justice Department, looking into whether or not uh, any of uh, Donald Trump's uh, money, uh, specifically campaign monies, um, through his Save America PAC, uh, Political Action Committee, whether those monies uh, were uh, raised uh, fraudulently to the extent they were. Uh, they're going to go after that money and they're going to freeze it. And then there are questions about what happens to it. But uh, it may lead to a pretrial forfeiture uh, of funds, which would dramatically impact uh, his campaign spending uh, and certainly his uh, spending on his uh, legal defense against these federal indictments. So that's the news of the hour. Our guest has been uh, Jennifer Taub, uh, professor of law and author. Her book um, that we referenced in this in this dialogue is called Big Dirty Money, the shocking injustice and unseen cost of white-collar crime. Professor Taub, good to have you on the program. Thanks for your time. All the best to you. Thank you so much, Tavis.